Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1, and the last time we finished up Galatians, the last chapter, chapter 6, and today we're starting a new book. It's in the Old Testament. It's after Samuel and, and Kings and Chronicles and Ezra. Keep going, and you'll boom, run into Nehemiah. Um, just to give you a little bit of a historical background, and you know, this is really the crucial message and foundational to understanding the rest of the book. Just a quick history recap. Uh, roughly 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., you know, the Babylonians were big, and they came, and they wanted everybody to submit, and Jerusalem had a wall, and they said, no, we're not, and it made Nebuchadnezzar, the king of uh, the Babylonian Empire, more angry, and they came in, and they not only get, went into the walls, they destroyed the temple, they looted all the gold, people were killed, they burned down the walls, there was no protection after that. Jerusalem was left in shambles. It's amazing because as we read, we went through the book of Daniel and we kind of get the impression towards the end that Nebuchadnezzar did become a believer. He got saved, so to speak. Well, after Nebuchadnezzar came some successive kings and they were pagan and they fell back into the wrong thing. The last king before they lost their kingdom was Belshazzar. And again, we talked about the handwriting on the wall and he's having this raucous, drunken party and the Medo-Persians are at the gate. I'm going to probably refer to the Persians a lot because they were the dominant force. They had the power, but they needed the Medes to tip the balance and to be able to beat Babylon. So Cyrus the king, the Persian king, is at the gates, and they get underneath. They divert the Euphrates River. They get underneath, and they attack Belshazzar. They wrench the kingdom from the Babylonians. Now the known world is under the Medo-Persian Empire. We covered all this. Cyrus, the Lord, softens his heart and he allows the Jews who were deported or expatriated from Jerusalem and such to this kingdom, this foreign pagan kingdom, 800 miles away. Cyrus' heart is softened and he allows the first group of Jews to go back to their homeland under Zerubbabel. So the first wave, a lot of them go back and they end up um, rebuilding the temple, reestablishing temple worship and you know, that happens. And check it out. As we were going through the book of Daniel, Daniel's still in Babylon. And it appears that maybe because he's aged, he doesn't leave Babylon. Maybe he thinks he can't make the trip or he's going to serve God over there. Okay? So that happens. And then after Cyrus comes, Smyrdas, uh, excuse me, Cambyses, then Smyrdas, who's also known as Gubarayu. And again, you can go into your encyclopedia after I'm done talking and see everything I said lines up perfectly. Darius comes after that. Somewhere in here, see, check it out. It's like a puzzle. I'm putting all the pieces of the different books of the Bible together to interlock so you can see a picture. Um, Under the book of Ezra, Ezra leads a second wave back to Jerusalem, back to Israel with the Jews, and he does that for spiritual revival. Yes, the temple's built, but to some, just like today in Christianity, it's just a religious thing, it's a rite, it's a ritual, and there's no relationship with God. Well, Ezra goes back to the homeland, and he reinstates this spiritual revival. 
After Darius I, we have Ahasuerus, who we also, known as, also know as Xerxes. Then comes the book of Esther. The book of Esther, right, Jew, young Jewish lady, she ends up marrying Xerxes or Ahasuerus, and she, because of her position, of course being married to the king, she stops this evil plot, this anti-Semitic plot from Haman from destroying the Jews. Okay. After Ahasuerus, Xerxes is Artaxerxes I. And this is where Nehemiah comes in. And Nehemiah goes back in a third wave. Now, he's, he's struggling. He's like, is this going to work? And we're going to talk about his difficulties. He goes back in a third wave to help to rebuild the city and the walls and the gates because now there's no defense, there's no protection. And check this out. Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. He's the last Old Testament prophet until we get to John the Baptist, some 400 years of prophetic silence until John the Baptist heralds the coming Messiah or Jesus Christ. So there you have your history in a nutshell. It's so cool. And part of what I do here is to give an application, but also to, for those, listen, for all of us, we're going to get challenged on our faith. How, how do we know this is true? I just, we, I just weaved the picture for you that you can go back to secular history and I'm going to mention some uh, artifacts and some papyri and, and documents that will support even more what we're saying here. So after Nehemiah, we'll probably jump into Philippians, eventually go to Romans, and then Revelation. So I'm just looking forward to, you know, if the Lord tarries the next year or two and what he's going to do in this church, and we'll see what happens. So a little overview. I always do this before I start a new book. This takes place around 445 B.C., the 5th century B.C., where Susa or Shushan, which was the winter capital of the Persian rulers. So, Pastor Joe, what does that mean today? What it means is today we would understand this area as Iran. Now, pre, for those of you that are my age or older, we remember the 1979 Islamic Revolution. And we know what Iran looks like today, sadly, and who they're ruled by. But prior to that, Iran or Persia, because I, I know people... And, you know, over the years that are Iranian and they say we are Persian. They still go back to the old culture. Very fascinating. There was a very rich Judeo-Christian culture in Iran pre-1979. So today, Shushan would be in the uh, western Iranian province over the Gulf Coast. Uh, and I'll tell you what, a lot of history has been sanitized over the years, but, and they're, they're more of a hermit kind of community but I tell you, one day we're going to see all the stuff that they have and how it, it reinforced what the Bible said. Who are we talking about? Well, the Bible, every book is about God. I don't want to make the mistake and say this is about Nehemiah. It's about God and what he did through Nehemiah. But his servant is Nehemiah. Nehemiah means Yahweh has comforted or the Lord has comforted. And I'll tell you what, and what he had to deal with, he needed to be comforted. And we'll look at that. He was a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes I Longimanus, who ruled from 464 to 423 B.C. Okay? Going to your encyclopedia, you'll find him. You'll have some pictures of him and what he did and, and all kinds of neat stuff. But what is a cupbearer? The simple answer is that he, you know, they didn't have modern technology like we do, so if the king was concerned or the queen the monarchs thought they might be poisoned. They would always have a cupbearer who would taste the wine or eat the food, and if they didn't keel over, then it was safe for the king and queen to eat. Uh, so that was what happened. But 
The position also came with prestige. The cupbearer was part of the king's cabinet. Now, we, today we look at a presidential cabinet and who he picks for his surrounding you know, support staff. So you could say that Nehemiah was part of the presidential cabinet. And with that, he had an influential position. Question, why? Well, Nehemiah grows up in captivity, right? It's been some almost 150 years to this point since the whole uh, Babylonian invasion. And a lot of the Jews are ethnic they're religious, but they've grown up in a foreign land. So he grows up in captivity, and the Lord stirs his heart to send a delegation back to his homeland, back to Jerusalem. Hey, give me a report. What's going on in Jerusalem? What's the situation like? How are the people? You know, what's the mood? So he sends this delegation to God's city of Jerusalem, and really this is the impetus for the change of Nehemiah's life that we'll look at. Let me ask the question, why again? Let me ask this on a personal note. Nehemiah, you got the life, man. You are in the king's court. You've got protection. You're eating good food. You're being educated by this, by this king. Why the heck would you risk your neck to go back to Jerusalem? Important question. See, this is a more powerful understanding when we realize how much he gave up to go on this endeavor. The stress, the attacks, the you know, the difficulties. And probably many didn't even appreciate what he did. Many of his own people, which is really sad, but he still did it. You know, I kind of think of Christians that give up lucrative or uh, prestigious careers. Actually, and, and this doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Uh, one of our missionaries to Africa was a financial guy, and we sat and he gave me his testimony. And he said, yeah, I was a financial guy, and I was doing good and I was rising through the ranks and one day the Lord called me and said, I want you to be a missionary in Africa. And he didn't go grudgingly. You ever see pictures and the guy comes here every once in a while and he's just got the joy of the Lord. He loves what he does for these children. So it, it happens. You know, God will do that. Some of us he'll use in our positions. Some of us he'll call out of our positions and use them um, the way he wants to. So Nehemiah ends up having two careers. He starts out being the cupbearer. And after that, he becomes really the governor of Jerusalem. Big life change. And before you think, well, he's the governor. That's good to be the king. No, no, no. It was a very difficult situation. So he becomes governor from 444 to 432 B.C. And it's just amazing when you see what a person sacrifices for the Lord. When they call us and we, we respond to it. And Nehemiah, and this is a term that we use in Christianity, is, is a type of Christ. As we go through every book, David, Nehemiah, uh, Noah, you can see a, a typified, a type of Christ. It doesn't mean that anybody can be like Christ because he's the Son of God, but it means that the more we respond to God, the more we respond to his Spirit, the more we're filled with his Spirit, we start to take on the characteristics of God, okay, to the best that we can as human beings. doesn't mean we're perfect. doesn't mean we stop sinning. So basically, Nehemiah leaves his royal court to slum it in Jerusalem, okay, or modern vernacular. Well, Jesus Christ left his heavenly abode. He left his kingship to come down to the earth to die for our sins and to be abused, to be whipped, to be beaten. He didn't deserve any of that, but he did it for us. You know, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And if we're doing it right, there's going to be times where people see Jesus in us. Okay? Now, did Nehemiah have obstacles to overcome? 
Oh, a whole bunch. So I'm going to be Nehemiah. I'm going to speak in the first person just to give you a feel for this wonderful man of God who had his failings and just struggles like you and I do. So I'm Nehemiah, and I'm thinking, let's see, I know God's calling me here, but number one, could I get volunteers? Could I get enough volunteers to do the job? And if I got volunteers, would this king let me go? Would he let us go? And if I got volunteers and the king would let us go, would the king provide protection for us during this difficult and dangerous journey of 800 miles from Shushan to Jerusalem? And would he provide the financing? Because we definitely would need that. We'd need a supply, a caravan, a food, and, and, and I'm thinking of these logistics. And then my question is, am I even qualified to do this? Think of yourself as I'm saying this. Think of yourself. Am I qualified? I'm a cupbearer, for heaven's sake. I'm not a trek leader. I'm not an adventurer. I'm not a, a soldier. And uh, I'm also not a construction worker, and I'm certainly not a construction foreman. Wow, there's a lot of things that I've got to really consider. You know what? I really have to rely on God. Now, when you think about the behemoth in your life, the Goliath in your life, and you're on the right side of God, consider Nehemiah. Are you qualified? Am I qualified? Was I qualified to do this when God called me? Heck no. As a matter of fact, I distinctly remember saying, no, no, I already have a job, no. My wife will attest to that. Even in front of the bigwigs of Calvary, I'm like, no, I can't do it. How the heck I ended up here <laughs> is, but I wasn't qualified. And sometimes God's like, that's the attitude I want. But I'm like, no, 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 Lord, this isn't reverse psychology. Whatever I have to say, I don't want to do this. That's even better. No, you're not getting it, God. But we do that. You know, God has a task for us, and we let fear and, and, and all the things that come along with human nature throw a monkey wrench into something wonderful that we could do where the Lord is lifting us up. It isn't about us. It's about him. A few more things here. Uh, and again, especially for the younger generation, the millennials, when you're challenged in your faith, and I'll write this down if you want. I'll send it to you in an email or write it down. But in addition to the biblical text, there's extra biblical text that I like to refer to, not that I have to because I believe in God's word, such as the Elephantine Papyri. These are, what? <laughs> These are 175 documents similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls, written in Demotic and, and Greek and different languages that basically were found in the Egyptian border fortresses of Elephantine and Aswan dating back to the 5th century. This isn't a Christian thing. This isn't a Jewish thing. This is a secular thing. 175 of these documents that all support the Nehemiah account. Read Nehemiah, read the Elephantine Papyri, and you'll find, wow, that's impressive. I never even heard of that before. That's why I'm here to tell you this stuff. Uh, Artaxerxes allows the Jews to go back and rebuild. And what this kicks off is, and I'm going to cover this next Sunday in the Daniel 9 uh, timetable, the prophetic clock starts to count to the, every good observant Jew. That's why the disciples jumped, left what they were doing to follow Jesus. Many followed him because every good observant Jew knew that Daniel 9's prophecy, based on Artaxerxes' command to send the Jews back in Daniel 9, was going to put the clock on a countdown to the Lord Jesus Christ's parousia or perusia or his appearing in the first century. To the day, 
of his triumphal entry. Fascinating. Fascinating. Let me just read before we really jump in and start. It's, it's a short chapter. Uh, gentleman, Pastor Ken Bow, he's a pastor in California. I just want to read this to you. This is his take on Nehemiah. And just think about, think about your own life as I read this. He says, Did you know that Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor for lack of ideas and that he also went bankrupt several times before he built Disneyland? Did you know that Babe Ruth set the record for the most home runs in baseball, but that he also holds the record for the most strikeouts? Did you know that in 1954, Jim Denny, the manager of the Grand Old Opry, fired Elvis Presley after one performance saying, you ain't going nowhere, you better go back to driving a truck. Did you know it took Thomas Edison 2,000 experiments before he invented the right filament that we take for granted, we go to the store and we buy it, for the first light bulb? When a young reporter asked him what it felt like to fail so many times, Edison replied, I never failed once. Inventing the light bulb just happened to be a 2,000-step process. <laughs> Did you know that by the time Beethoven was 46 years old, he had become completely deaf and yet went on to compose his greatest works, including five symphonies, during his deaf years? And did you know that Jonas Salk, the man who invented the vaccine for polio, attempted 200 unsuccessful vaccines before he came up with the one that worked? Someone asked Jonas how it felt to fail 200 times trying to come up with the vaccine for polio, and he replied, I never failed 200 times at anything in my life. My family taught me never to use that word. I simply found 200 ways to not make a vaccine for polio. <laughs> Amazing, huh? What was it about these people that enabled them to endure adversity, failure, ridicule, and heartbreak? What gave them their inner resolve and determination to press on in spite of the difficulties and setbacks? I want you to know, or I want to know, don't you? I mean, when things get tough in my life, as a pastor speaking, my tendency is to become discouraged and depressed. I'm tempted to just give up. How about you? You ever feel like just throwing in the towel? Well, if you're feeling like that today, as you open this book of Nehemiah, you're in for surprise. Because Nehemiah is going to show you how to keep going when you feel like giving up. In fact, determination is the big idea that runs through this book. And I believe that you, yes you, can develop the same degree of determination as Nehemiah if you answer some simple questions. I won't read the rest of it, but... Now, let's not get confused. Sometimes there's, well not sometimes, unfortunately in Western Christianity there's a teaching that basically says every time you go to God, ask for stuff for yourself. There are always selfish prayers. What Nehemiah did was other-centered, okay? And believing that God had the power to empower him because this is what's something that God wanted. So my reason for this teaching is that, for a lot of reasons, I think that, listen, this is, uh, gee, 2,500 years ago, but it, couldn't, it could have been written yesterday. I think it'll empower us, it'll encourage us, and I tell you what, if you're going through something right now, and you know the Lord's hand is in it, I believe that this will strengthen you. You know, you might have what you believe is an insurmountable task, but you've got to trust God through this whole thing. So, jumping in, starting with verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, which is between November and December, in our understanding, in the 20th year, the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, 
with a fortified palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, where Jerusalem is in, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the, ca- survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So these are the circumstances that is the attention of of Nehemiah that gave him the drive, that gave the the stimulation to have his life changed. So he grows up in captivity, doesn't probably never went there, doesn't maybe not even know the people. Some of them might have been his relatives. And he sends a delegation, a fact-finding mission. So go to Jerusalem and, and let me know what the situation looks like. And this is the answer. The report is devastating and, quite frankly, depressing. Okay? So, yeah, they were able to rebuild the temple, which was not as glorious as Solomon's temple. Um, a lot of commentators and historians make that comparison. So they were able to worship, but the walls are burned down. You know, and there's... Bedouins, there's indigenous people, there's, you know, transients, and they sneer and jeer, attack, um, whatever the case may be. And the Jewish people are struggling. It's like if we were right now worshiping and we had no walls and people were throwing spitballs at us and making noise and trying to disrupt, it'd be like, oh man, it's frustrating. Understand this, in the United States we have protection. Our military If somebody tries to enter our airspace into New Jersey and they're from another country, they send up their jets. We're protected. Local police protect municipalities, state police, state, you know, provinces. So understand that they didn't have this. They didn't have this. So it was really difficult for them. Understand this too, and maybe I'll I'll bring something, because I enjoy history, something more current. In 1945, Berlin was a mess. The Allies bombed the heck out of Berlin. They didn't, a lot of people didn't have running water. The food supply was cut off. There was disease, and there was rubble everywhere. And if it wasn't for, so there's an economic issue here. If it wasn't for the Allies pumping in capital to Berlin, Berlin today is a beautiful city, but if nobody helped them, it still would be in rubble, in shambles. You need money to get things done. You need people. You need organizational skills. So look at this from the perspective of those that are inhabiting Jerusalem. Verse 4, so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah takes this hard. Nehemiah has what we would call empathy, which is actually more powerful than sympathy. Oh, I can sympathize. Something happened to you. Um, That's sad. Or I could empathize and say, gee, what if that happened to me? So it's a, a deeper emotional response. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of the malaria nets. You, in this Calvary Chapel body, had, gee, I thought it was the whole congregation downstairs when they were, you know, having that bake sale. But what you did was, out of empathy, you thought of kids in Africa and villages that you probably never meet, but you empathize with mothers losing their kids to malaria, and you went down and, and did some amazing things, and all the money that was raised goes directly to these children in these villages so that they could, you know, not have to deal with it. That's called empathy. Again, you may never meet them in your, in your living life, but you empathize with the situation. So, of course, there's a call of God, but he also has empathy. And what does he do first? This just shows you that the Bible is real because it, it's, it's not a perfect fairy tale story. You know, Nehemiah doesn't go, 
Well, I'm going to put an S on my chest, and I'm going to put my cape on. I'm going to fly out to Jerusalem. I'm going to take care of everything. He weeps. He, he's, he's sad about that. And that happens to us, don't, doesn't it? When you hear really bad news, we may weep. We may cry, and it's cathartic. It's a release of emotions. But then he prays, and he fasts. So check this out. See, prayer is so important. And, you know, I'm talking to a church. Well, we know that, Pastor Joe. But you've got to look at the culture, and you have to look at how the culture affects us. Some people, when they hear bad news, when they should be going to God first, maybe air their dirty laundry on social media. Not a good response. Or maybe go to the Internet right away to find a solution to the issue. Or, and th- th- these are not bad, make a phone call to other Christians. But really, going to God should be first. And I tell you, when we're really in a jam, sometimes we, it's just a natural thing where we go to God first. I can't tell you how many uh, calls in my police career uh, I would hear from the dispatcher, and they would, you could hear it in their voice. It's a bad call. And I would put my pedal to the metal, turn on my lights and sirens, and as I'm flying there, because it only takes a few minutes when you're doing that, I'd be like, Lord, this sounds really, really bad. <laughs> Please, I need your protection. I need your wisdom. Help me to, you know, and this is a short prayer, but it's effective, you know, because I, I know he got that one, you know what I'm saying? So prayer is so important, and, and sometimes we don't realize it until we're in an emergency situation. Um, some give up, and I, I've seen this. Some give up on prayer because things aren't happening fast enough. You know, God's not moving quick enough. So they give up on prayer. Remember, prayer isn't the drive through There's no such thing as drive through prayer. Prayer isn't instant messenger or chat, Snapchat. You know, I just took a selfie of me and God today. <laughs> I mean, this is, prayer is a lifestyle. Listen, don't, don't get me wrong. I don't lay on the floor for five hours in a row praying. And I probably, definitely, and I'm telling you as a pastor, I should be praying more. And I think we can always say that. But prayer is a part of my life. I talk to God. It's a relationship. It's not repeating stuff over and over again. It's, it's having a conversation and then listening for what he has to say. So it's something that we, we should be regularly investing ourselves in. Well, let's look at the elements of this prayer as we go for the next few verses till the end of the chapter, verses 5 through 11. So jumping in, verse 5, he says, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who, who love you and observe your commandments. So the first thing we see about prayer is acknowledging God's character. This is very simple, similar, similar to what we would call the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, our Father who are in heaven. It's not to we, that we repeat, repeat it ten times. It's that we get the concept of it, and then we respond accordingly. Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, how to talk to your Father in heaven. So the first thing is, it's, it's God's character. Understand, who are we dealing with? We're dealing with God. What is our understanding of God? But we know that part of our understanding is his character. Nehemiah tells us that he keeps his covenant, his agreements that he makes. He keeps his promises, he tells us, right? And his mercy with those who love him is, is are coming to even church. Is it a religious observance or obligation, or is it, is it because we love God? No, only each person can answer that. Verse 6 and 7 He says, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, 
and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. We have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. So 6 and 7, the first part of it is, which, or the first part of the, the verse, which is the second point I want to make, is that is asking God to answer his prayer. Now, no one has to coach us on this one. <laughs> so some people, their prayer life is constantly, I need this. God, I need that. God, give me this. God, give me that. Very, so believe me, the part about asking for stuff, some, yeah, some think that God's like a heavenly Mac machine, you know. You just go to him when you need something, and then you ignore him after that. Um, so, but in, in, a, in a mature prayer, this, this is, of course, a part of it, right? Asking, Lord, and, and again, he's not asking for himself. He's asking for others that he empathizes with. And it doesn't mean that we can't pray for ourselves. Don't get, I'm not sitting up here being Mr. Super Spiritual. So just understand the second part is that, is that, God, I just pray that you answer this prayer. Understanding this, that sometimes when God answers a prayer, it's not exactly the way we want him to answer it. Remember, he's God. And then just submitting to his will. The third part is confession of sins, repentance. The cool thing is he doesn't say, oh, they did it. And, and I tell you, that's like a self-righteous attitude. Well, of course the gates are burned down. They did it. And their fathers... In, he says, we, and in my father's house, and me, we did it. He takes personal responsibility, which is very important, especially in our culture. And we can look at our culture and say the same thing. We, we. American culture is becoming very decadent very fast. As much as I love my country, there's things that I find very disturbing. So let me hit closer to home. We can also look at the Christian culture and Western Christianity and make the same observations. We, Lord, there's some weird stuff. And, and it's sometimes a hindrance to people coming to faith because they see weirdness in the church. We, okay? Let me just go back to something really quick. Technically, if a church doesn't use sin, doesn't understand the confession of sin, doesn't understand the things that are important in a relationship with God, it's technically not a church. Any good leadership will give you the good with the bad. And I say bad, not that God's word is bad, but bad because we don't want to hear it. And that, that's what helps us to grow and mature. Okay? But we see this, Nehemiah is interceding, intercessory prayer. Right? He's interceding for those inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's powerful. Okay? And again, Nehemiah had the life in Persia. Except, of course, on the unfortunate occasion, if he did drink some wine and there was poison and he died. But up to this point, he was doing well. Nobody poisoned anything and he was living a good life in the Persian kingdom. So he gave up a lot. He sacrificed. Verse 8. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful. This was a promise to the children of Israel. I will scatter you among the nations. Sometimes we can be enablers. We warn. There's consequences, and we keep doing that, especially with our kids, and then we don't follow through. Oh, they're going to be like, damn. I can, kids are smart. I'm going to endure a little bit of yelling, a little bit of tantrum. Eventually, it'll blow over, and I'll get to do what I want. God's not like that. And then people think, oh, you know, God's being mean. No, he's not. He promised these things. If, you're un if you go 
worshiping the fish god and all this weird stuff. Well, guess what? Don't ask me for anything. And he has every right to do that. You're, you're just acting like the pagans. Okay, so if you're unfaithful, guess what? It's not going to go well with you. And he had to keep his promises. So the fourth thing we look at is accepting God's discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God loves those he disciplines. Right? He chastens them as a son or a daughter. Now, sometimes we might complain, Lord, don't love me so much. Love that person a little bit. You know, it's a little heavy right now. But Hebrews 12, God loves those he chastens. He chastens those that he loves. Israelites were disciplined, but they were not forsaken. And, and brothers and sisters, hear me out on this one. When we get emotional and we think things are going, and we don't even know, we can't put our finger in it. There's trials and stuff. The emotional part of us will, will come front and center and have these weird ideas like, well, God loves you less than the rest of those church people, or you're a failure, or you shouldn't be a Christian. And that's all, it's all from the enemy. Okay? It's, it's just emotions. We can be disciplined, but not forsaken. Okay? God does not forsake those that he loves. So we're going to see some really awesome things happen in Jerusalem. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest, farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The fifth part, returning to God. Right? We have our confession, we have our repentance, then we have the deliverance and restoration, and of course there's forgiveness as well. So this is the blessing. Jerusalem, it's, it's come in stages. This is the third stage. They're going to rebuild the wall and the gates. And you know it's going to be a great time. They're going to feel secure. They're going to feel protected. Um, you know, but I can tell you, even as Christians, Jesus also talked about doing. He didn't just talk about talking. You know, sometimes believers like the historicity of the Ten Commandments or the, or the law, or, you know, and they just have this libertine type of attitude. Or, or show compassion for someone that you can help. Oh, it's, that's nice in the Bible, and you walk past that person. The Good Samaritan was all about religious people walking past somebody who, could, who needed the help. Okay? So we have to understand these concepts, not just to fanciful, not just to fancy them, but also to actually do them. Verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper in this day, I pray, and grant him mercy, speaking about himself, in the sight of this man speaking about the king. For I was the king's cupbearer. Sixth part is leave it in God's hand, right? Leave it in his hands to trust him with the outcome, you know? Nehemiah had to go before the king of Persia, the king of the world at that time. But he had to go before the king of the universe before he went before the king of the world. Understand that. And I, and I see this too in sometimes in Western Christianity when pastors are around so long or ministry, they, they become bedfellows with politicians. We should want to get to know politicians to try to see them saved. Not to try to, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Hey, I got this permit. You help me out. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. So before Nehemiah went to the king of the world, he had to go to the king of the universe. Understand that. That had to come first. Okay? And Nehemiah also wanted to be a part of the solution. I, I, I make a joke, and please take it for what it is. 
Uh, I talk about what we call here, and in other churches, what's called the you should ministry. A person who, you know, and it's just part of the Western spectator type of attitude in some, in some that they go and they look at the church and they see what's wrong with it or what could be changed and they go and they say, hey, you guys should do this. You should change that. You should do this. And I often say, you know what, write me up a proposal and uh, let me know what part you want to play. And I said, that sounds like a great idea. Oh, no, 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 no. God told me that you should. No, but he gave you the idea. You know, but you heard me talking about some awesome things that people have said and they have been a part of it and, and I give them credit. I don't take the credit for it. So there's some really bright people in this church that are we, are we spectators or are, do we want to be a part of the solution even if it's on a limited basis? You know, I think about the live nativity every year. Every year it's been growing and the scenes have been changing and Legia back there had the idea it wasn't mine. Again, I'm giving her credit. But she said, I, I want to be a part of it. I'm like, that is so awesome. You know, I, it's, it's so, many, only so many things you can juggle, you know, going on at the same time. But Nehemiah stepped up. He said, I want to be a part of the solution. How does this affect you? Because it's a short chapter. Don't resist God's calling in your life. And don't shortchange yourself. Don't undercut yourself. Believe me, when I was asked to be a pastor, I'm like, <laughs> I took some classes. I know the Bible pretty well. I know how to pray. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking like I needed some course or some qualification, and it, it happened. You know what I'm saying? It's a blur sometimes, but it, it did happen. Uh, but I would just say this. Don't resist God's calling in your life. The Scottish novelist George MacDonald said, check this out, In whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. That's fascinating. Because we all know some that have walked away from the faith because there's this, this struggle. You know, evil is trying to keep pulling them back. But God is, you know, he, 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 loves, his, his, he loves everybody. He wants them to come to him. And you can see some fail in life, maybe through a temptation or some horrible thing, and they disappear but what's even sadder he checked this out i love this he said or succeed more miserably and i've seen others that if sometimes something's going wrong in your life you may disappear for a while you may come back you may start praying again i need to start doing this again but sometimes those that succeed and and satan gives them all the kingdoms of the world you want to be famous you're famous you want a million dollars do whatever you want just to keep you away from god and they succeed more miserably because it's the success that pulls them away from God. And some never come back when that happens. I've seen that too. Such a strong draw. Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus says, I need to go to the cross. Because I love, I love them. I love humans. So, my question to you is, do you think that God, after punishing or dealing with Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah and Babylon, do you think that... The United States is just going to keep going. There's going to be no problems. I'm going to say no because God doesn't play favorites. The judgment and the discipline is coming. Christians, we've got work to do. We need to start getting trained up. We need to start getting into the game. Maybe starting with faithful in the little and then become faithful in more. Okay? But if God is calling you, don't ignore his calling. The title of today's message is Unqualified yet achieving the impossible. How is that possible? Jesus told us, and I'm paraphrasing that with man, impossible things would be just that, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
So I just want to bless you with something, and then uh, just we'll close. But it's amazing as I'm, um, I'm putting the message together. I'm like, I'm so busy this week. And we have a, one of our missionaries on the mission field wanted to meet with me, and I thought, I've got to push this to next week. I just don't have the time. And I felt like God was saying, just meet with them. Find time. And I did. And they sat with me, not knowing about Nehemiah or anything. They've been on the mission field for years. And they said, we have an opportunity to come home a real life change and minister to somebody who's not going to live much longer, who may, who's not saved either. And uh, we just feel the Lord calling us to do this and to see what kind of doors are open. And they said to me, but we feel so unqualified. We're missionaries. We, I don't ha- he's, the guy goes, I don't have a job. We have to kind of buy a house and, you know, or buy whatever. It was amazing. And I said to them, wow, I am going to use this in the message. I hope you don't mind. They had so many obstacles. And then the Lord gave them, opened the doors for this place that they would stay in. And for the, it's just amazing. And uh, I told them about Nehemiah and, and his struggles and his being unqualified. And they looked at me and they had tears in their eyes. I said, if this isn't from the Lord, I don't know what is. It was, it was powerful. And I'm like, now I know why I had to meet with them. And they were blessed because we got to pray and I gave them some advice. And I'm like, you blessed me. <laughs> and I'm going to use this on Sunday. But a lot of times the precursor for God using us is for us to admit that we're unqualified. And there's plenty in ministry that they think they're the A-team. And they're just waiting for God to give them something because they're so darn good. And oftentimes it either fails or people see it for what it is. It's a flesh ministry. As the saying goes, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. You see, the confidence that we have is not in our qualifications. It's in His, brothers and sisters. So I have no doubt that some of you, this is for you, I'm telling you this morning. We can't look at our deficit and make decisions from there. It's wrong. Right? When we look at our deficit, we see something. We see a void where God has to fill. And if Nehemiah did that, guess what we wouldn't have? A book of Nehemiah. But we do have a book of Nehemiah because he did the honorable thing. So whatever it is that you think you're ill-equipped to handle and God is on your side, I just want to encourage you with this book. And I'm hoping by the end of this book, or even maybe a chapter or two into, into it, that I'm able to persuade you and change your mind through the Word. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfield's by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.